Welcome back to another episode of Hints and Guesses. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for your comments and thoughts and questions and observations that a few of you have sent me. It's it's inspiring and it creates a sense of conversation. I feel like I'm in conversation with podcasts that I listen to, with authors that I read, with poems that I read, um, and of course, obviously with my, my friends, family members I'm in conversation. And, and it's so interesting to me that the world has shifted so radically in terms of where the vibrant conversations are taking place. We are no longer looking necessarily to the structures, the religious structures or systems or higher education. All of those may have a place and certainly are a voice in our culture, but we're going wherever we're finding content. That's the way it seems to me. And podcasts are so interesting because it's so immediate and um, so really easy to make that anyone with an idea, which it could be dangerous, of course, can put out a podcast. But the, the sense of momentum around the shifting, changing nature of spirituality seems to be growing. And to me, that's just really, really exciting. I like Joanna Macy's phrase, we live in a time period of a great turning. And, you know, Phyllis Tickle also has the notion of these 500-year cycles. I think Joanna Macy means it. something even bigger is happening. From the birth of what we would call civilization to the present, our, our, um, what she calls the industrial growth society, we're seeing its limits. And we're seeing the limits of our own technological advances and technologies and a sense of progress, and something massive is turning. It's, some of it is dying and going back into the earth. And the cycle of birth and death is happening once again culturally and individually and where the 21st century is like a front row seat <laughs> and it's like it's a, a front row seat to let's just be honest some suffering and some pain and some injustice the limits of our industrial growth society are catching up with us I grew up in a place called Belmont here in Michigan and the Wolverine Corporation, Wolverine Worldwide, who's responsible for hush puppies and Merrill shoes and a bunch of other things, in the 60s, 70s, took their toxic waste and put it in barrels and put it in the earth. And this was an age when you did this kind of stuff. And there was not a lot of oversight. And some of it was legal. Some of it appears to have been illegal. I always think it's funny that there are, there's legal and illegal dumping. Either one, poison goes into the earth. And all over Belmont, including the street that I lived on, the wells were poisoned. And now we're finding out the streams and rivers, the Rogue River, famous trout stream where I spent four out of five days when I was in high school. Five days. How many, how many days are there in the week? I, there are seven, 
I'm, I'm pretty sure on this, but I spent four or five of the days out on the river. I knew the river so well, in fact, I even knew specific fish. There were a couple of big browns that I never caught, but I would you know, see glimpses of in certain sections of the river. Turns out the water they've been swimming in, their natural habitat, has been poisoned by human greed and capitalism and a lack of a searching moral inventory about what goes into our products. And not only that, human beings have been poisoned and there have been cancers and all kinds of other ailments now coming to the surface. And possibly even in my own family, my dad had ALS and it's a crazy disease if you know anything about it. And they don't really know why people get ALS, but the most contemporary research is or suggests that there's some kind of environmental trigger. Maybe there's a kind of genetic landmine somewhere in the code of some of someone's makeup, but the environment seems to be that what triggers that um, disease. Who knows? There could be a relationship. I will never know. No one will ever know. But there could be a relationship between the hush puppies that we bought in the 1970s and, you know, diseases that affect real people. Anyway, it's deeply sad and, and there's something to be grieved. And it's and suddenly the curtain gets pulled back on the industrial growth society. The curtain gets pulled back for a moment. We say, wait a minute. Why are we doing this stuff? Who is it benefiting? And who is it hurting and who is it harming? And which leads us straight into questions of what does it mean to be a human being? And what is the good life? And what are we born in the world to be and do? And those are questions of the soul, which is what I've been trying to talk about and what I guess probably I'm always trying to talk about in my podcasts. What is soul? And by that, I mean, what does it mean to be a human being? What is the deep self or what Thomas Merton called the true self? What is it individually? And even what is what is the soul of humanity? What is the, the heartbeat of our deepest existence? Our most natural and wild, soulful selves, creative fires that they are, how can that live out in, into the world? And how can we grow up into our capacities to bring forth the song that we can only sing? It's like uh, Shakespeare saying, um, all the world's a stage and you you may contribute a verse. God, that is so compelling to me. What is that verse? <laughs> That's a question of soul. You have a song, a line, a poem, a painting, uh, a business, but even beyond like the, the different mechanisms, you have a, a kind of deep voice that wants to grow into the world. Now you've used this deep voice before and you've stumbled into it and so have I and the question becomes how do we cultivate a deeper sense of this song this voice those are questions of soul and in the last podcast if you listen to it I was trying to make some distinctions between both our spiritual paths but the path of 
ascending, which tends to be the path of spirit, transcendence, and the path of incendence, which is a line from Thomas Berry, meaning descent. So on the one hand, we rise above our egoic personas. That's we transcend. That's connection with God and spirit and union and non-dual. And then there's the spiral down into the depths of our own unique individuality. That's a question of soul. And both of those are like two train tracks. And if both are operating, if one's operating, just spirit, we're going to go in circles. <laughs> Probably if, if the other, if it's just soul, we're, we can also go in circles, which might look like narcissism. I don't know. <laughs> but for both to be uh, functioning as well as they can, then there's a sense of movement and a sense of contact with something larger than who we are and contact with our own inner depths. Those are questions of soul. And I want to, I can't really end the conversation. This is part three of a three-part series, but I hope to get it going. I hope there is an on-ramp. I hope there's something in what I'm saying that awakens something within you. That's often how the soul descent, as it's traditionally understood, gets going. So it, it knocks on the door and then you have to leave and it can feel like a loss of who you thought you were in the world. So I, I don't know if, I don't really know if I'm going to get to defining soul. It's something that kind of resists definition in the same way trying to define God or spirit resists definition. But I will have a go at a few phrases kind of by the end of uh, this podcast. Uh, phrases or images that have helped me in getting a little closer to what we're talking about. And before I get to that, I sometimes think about the soul journey, the soul descent, as learning a new language. And it's a kind of language that's beneath our everyday language. It's a language of image, of feeling and sensing. It's an imaginative language. And we've been kind of out of practice in this language, or it's something that we forgot. It's like maybe we grew up in a, in a foreign country, and when we were kids, we spoke the language of that country, but then our parents moved us to uh, wherever, and we grew up speaking a different language, and it sort of faded. And maybe we can remember a word or two here or there, or, you know, we watch a program, and, and all of a sudden we're like, oh, I, and it floods back for a moment. But at a certain point, we begin to turn toward that old, ancient, mythic, and archetypal language, and we begin to speak it again. We begin to walk toward that country where the language of symbol, image, metaphor, nuance, and depth, where that's the common language. And the reason why I like this as kind of a metaphor is that it's hard to learn a mostly forgotten language. There's not a course, there's not a three-part podcast, there's not 12 steps to recovering your, your true inner voice or soul or something like that. It doesn't work that way because you only learn, just like you do a language, you only learn more about it by speaking it, 
by embodying it. Once you have glimpses of your inner depths, you can only bring those forth in the world if you want to learn anything about them by trial and error. So it takes time. And I don't know, I mean, I may have said this in a previous podcast, I don't know, but uh, Carl Jung, who you don't have to be a huge fan of, I, I tend to be attracted to to his work. Not that I'm a, a Jungian, I don't know enough to be to know if I am or not. He says something is happening in our culture between the age of 35 and 45. And it's something like the midlife crisis. But here, the pressures of being a contemporary Western well-educated and maybe not so well-educated person tends to come to a head around this time period. Now that does not, we can't universalize that. But I think, because I am, in other words, it can be at any age, but there's something about who we thought we would become in the world that has to stop working like a midlife crisis has to your life has to quit working and then the door opens the descent the you're at the cliff's edge and you fall what a gift and because it's a descent from who you thought you were in the world it's perilous, it's scary, it's dark, and people try to talk you out of it, which I was, I've been suggesting in, in previous episodes. But I'm just reminding, reminding us. So it takes time. I, like in the book of Revelation, which, how fun is it to quote from the book of Revelation? The author says, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. I think about that phrase as it relates to uh, doing our work, going on the soul descent, to use John of the Cross, dark night of the soul, when that begins to happen, even if you wouldn't even call it that, this calls for patient endurance. It takes time because once we're underground, once we're under the surface, once we're in the rabbit hole, we are in the territory of our own wounds our own personal wounds, our own cultural wounds, the wounds of our own family of origin that we've inherited, which they're all down there. And it is hard work. It's hard to get close to these, to these wounds. And to do so, according to the great teachers, even like Henry Nouwen, who called it the wounded healer, to get close to these wounds or closer and to begin to touch upon them in a new way, in a more merciful and graceful way, you also bump into your very gifts, that, that there's a secret underground. And the secret seems to be your wound and your gift are connected. And the places that you hurt, in other words, is also the territory with which you find out more about your soul, the, the shape you are really, or what Merton would call the true self. And, you know, just a, a bit of a cav caveat about the word true self, because I find myself saying it, and it also makes me a little uncomfortable, because it makes it sound like there's a true self and a false self. And it's just a simple matter of saying, hey, I've you know, now I'm in the true self, and away we go. It doesn't seem to 
work like that. Maybe a better phrase is the truer self. But I think, uh, and Merton would be the probably the person, if you really wanted to dive in that particular word, go read his stuff. He talks about it all over the place and with a lot of depth. It's not a simple concept. But um, the caveat is the ego would love nothing more than to sink its teeth into the notion of the true self and then divide up the world because that's what the ego is good at, making categories. Who's in, who's out, what's true, what's false. It's dualistic by its very nature. So it's going to love something like, oh, there's a true self. That's what I'm all about right now, and I'm just living from that place. I think some sensitivity and some humility, I'm preaching to myself really, some humility around the notion of a true self, a deep self, or soul is needed. I think all we can ever say in the end is, I'm trying to sink back into the source of who I am. And if you're religious or spiritual at all, or if you have the notion of a god, even if it's not an external deity, the mystics say to sink back into the source of our deepest, truest selves is to touch upon the source, which is God. And that's what makes a conversation like this cyclical or holistic or like a spiral. It comes around. We touch upon our deep self and therefore we touch upon God or we touch upon the divine and we touch a little more of our deep self. And just like all things in the natural world, things take time. And there are cycles and seasons and things sprout up and they're vibrant and full and they release their seeds out into the world and then they shrink back, back down into the roots, the depths, beneath the surface, the origins and the soil and the cycle starts over again. Now in this third installment, around soul, I want to turn to Mary Oliver's poem, The Journey. And I've used this poem in teachings before. In fact, when I quit Mars Hill here in Michigan, when I was a pastor, I read this poem. And I didn't read it because I really knew very much about it, or I was even trying to make a point but the poem had become a part of my own story. It had been working on me. And I had written it on my whiteboard in my office, and I read it every day that I was in the office for about a year. Sometimes I'd just glance at it. Sometimes I'd read it out loud. I'd read it standing up. I'd read it sitting down. And it worked on me. I actually think that's what poems are meant to do. That's what sacred scripture is meant to do. It's meant to work on us. Both awaken something deep, the seeds of soul, and also it works on our egoic perceptions of who we think we are. A good poem will do that. Good poem, good scripture, good parable, good story. It starts to clean the lens and eliminate illusions, or at least invite us to 
let go of some of our own illusions about the way the world is and who we think we are in it and stuff like that. So I want to read the poem. I want to, and I'll make some comments about it because I thought to myself, I, I can't really do a, a three-part series on soul and then have a conclusion that isn't a poem, that isn't an image. After all, Jung says the soul is an image. And I, I don't exactly know what he means by that, but the soul speaks the language of images, archetypes, metaphors, symbols, patterns. That's where it's at home. And so why not end with a poem and, and allow it to do a bit of its work on us? So here it is. One day... You finally knew what you had to do and you began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. At a certain point in our unfolding story, we get to a place where it's time to begin again. Kind of like St. Francis saying, let us begin again for up till now we've done nothing. Which is maybe a little of what the Buddhists uh, had in mind when they began to speak about the beginner's mind. Where... Whatever's been working up to this point is not going to keep working. My cat's bothering me right now. What do you want? Maybe she's about to begin something. And it feels like the next chapter is going to require some something that you don't currently have very much access to the tools that have brought you this far on the journey are not the tools you'll need for the next part and it feels like you have to begin and you finally know and what is it that you finally know that you have to begin you knew what you had to do and I love it that she doesn't say what it is that this person has to do. She just says, you know you have to do it, and it's time to begin. And the second you do that, the voices come out of the woodwork. They're internal voices, they're, they're inside our own psyches, and they're external voices. The mentors and parents and family and friends and all of our own inner loyal soldiers get activated, and they start saying, do not do this. Do not go any further. You are dangerous. You're going to mess your life up. Don't go any further. Come back home. Don't you know if you go down this particular path, you're going to be lost. You're not going to be one of the chosen people. You're not going to, it could be worse. You're going to end up in hell. You're going to, you know, fill in the blank, depending on the threat. And what I think frightens people is that their image of you is no longer going to work. 
the role that you've been fulfilling in other people's lives, that's what they're afraid to lose. Which is why they keep shouting, mend my life. Noth especially for those of us who are a little more oriented toward pleasing people. I think all of us do a little bit of that, but, but some of us maybe do it more than others. As soon as you hear something like mend my life, something gets activated. You're like, that's right, I can do this. I can fix this. That's what I'm here to do. I'm here to fix you. It's like that Coldplay song, I will fix you. That's someone <laughs> who's still stuck in the same pattern. I will fix you. Well, the truth is, that's not going to work. And we're about to sort of go down that path in this poem. So she continues. You felt that old tug at your ankles. Men, my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. And I think Mary Oliver here is, is giving us an image that this path, which I would call a, a kind of a descent to soul, leaving something behind, is a bit of a wild thing. It's a wild night, and it actually feels already kind of late. Maybe this is why Jung says a lot of this work starts about 35. Don't hold him to that number. I think the kind of crisis of our of being a modern human being is starting earlier and earlier. But for Jung, he said 35 to 45, perfect. That's when it's like at its peak. In other words, it's already kind of late. You feel like, God, I wish I would have done this sooner. And there are fallen branches on the road and the storms of life have done their work, I think she's describing. And there's melancholy. These voices that are like, stay with me, do not change, keep doing what you're doing. I need you. Their melancholy is terrible. She goes on, but little by little, as you left their voice behind, the stars begin to burn through the sheets of clouds. The stars begin to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own. This is such a, a powerful and provocative image. It's like, to put it into to soul-oriented questions, it's like something has been there all along. In this case, it's your voice, your true voice, your deep voice. The voice beneath the voice, the voice that is without words, has been there all along, and you've forgotten about it. Sort of like forgetting a language. And when it first begins to come out of hiding, like Parker Palmer says, the soul is shy, and it's like a caged animal. And when it begins to come out of hiding, slowly but surely, it, maybe at first you don't even recognize, what is this happening in my life? And I think Mary Oliver says, and over time, 
if you can get comfortable in this wild night, listening for this deeper voice as the stars begin to burn through the sheets of clouds, you start to recognize it as your own. And it starts to keep you company. And you start to not need the company of the old voices who kept, who will keep shouting their bad advice. But this voice begins to keep you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. Determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Which I think is a good way of summarizing the path of soul discovery, soul descent, or the question of soul. That the only life in the end we are responsible for, the only life we can save or recover or bring back from its dormant state is our own. That's the thing we can take responsibility for. And ironically, by taking responsibility for awakening and allowing this true or truer voice to emerge, that's the thing we bring forth in the world. She doesn't say you then, you touch upon this new voice and you put it in a journal and you lock it away or you put it in a cage or you, you barricade yourself off from the world. It says, no, you bring it forth. You're actually walking deeper and deeper into the world. That's part of the recovery process. It's one thing to say, I'm on, I'm on a, 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 the path of sort of discovering myself. Well, good for you. And then what? What is the purpose? The purpose is to bring that forth in the world, to offer that song, that voice, that poem, that work of art, your life as a work of art into the wild world. You know, it, it, like Thomas Merton says, a tree is just fine as a tree. It's being its tree self. But for some strange reason, we have to go on this wild journey, this wild night to learn to be the thing that we are, the thing that we already are, which maybe starts to get us a little closer to a definition of soul. What might that be? I don't know. I'll throw out a bunch. The face you had before you were born. In other words, the image you had before you had an image in the world. That thing that rests, that image that rests beneath your external image, the face you had before you were born, or the true self, like what Thomas Merton was talking about, or your true voice, which I think is what Mary Oliver is talking about, and actually what all artists, if they're honest, admit they struggle with. They go through periods and seasons, and sometimes they feel like they lose it, and sometimes they feel like they find it. Sometimes it comes like, like a visitation, like the muse would come and you're swept up in this and then you recognize it as your own. Who knows? But the, the pursuit and the longing and the yearning for one's truest voice, which leads me to just a tiny observation. And that has to do with the struggle and the tension between authenticity and social acceptance. 
which is one of the major struggles of being an adolescent. And now we live in an adolescent culture. Bill Plotkin actually calls it a patho-adolescent culture. And adolescents can follow us to the grave in a psycho-spiritual sense. And the tension between authenticity and social acceptance, because every teenager is trying to find who they are, which is why they're trying on so many hats. But the pull of the group and group identity is radical and strong and pervasive. And you end up, most of us, end up conforming in one way, shape, or form. Even if we conform to the image of a rebel, to the nonconformist, we're still conforming. We want to know who we are by who we're against. What group am I in? What tribe am I in? What religion am I in? What version of that religion am I in? Those are the concerns, and I think healthy concerns, of just growing up, being an adolescent, of wondering who we are. But if we want to grow any further, and here's my point, if we want to grow up, we begin to choose authenticity over social acceptance. We stop going to the parties. We stop uh, the fixation on social identities or political identities uh, or tribal ways of dressing. And we, we say, no, I'm going to choose authenticity, even if I don't know very much about it. That's actually probably when you can trust it the most, that there's a kind of conscious choice. I cannot swim in this stream anymore, and I'm choosing authenticity, though I know very little about it. That's, I think, one day you finally knew what you had to do and you began. And you suffer the consequences and the melancholy and the terrible, bad shouting voices in the process. A couple more images and then I'm done. I'm drawn to uh, um, Plotkin's way of phrasing soul. And this is what he says, the place you were born to inhabit. And that's almost a geographical way of putting things, which is actually a little bit sounds like Merton. You know, a tree is just a tree. You know, the willow tree on the edge of my property, on the edge of the cattails, was born to inhabit that place. And it is inhabiting that place. And it's being itself in a kind of geographical location. And I think something of the soul and the pursuit or question of soul is about finding our place in the world, the thing we're meant to inhabit, the place we're meant to inhabit. That can be a geography, but I think I think it can, in other words, I think it can be a physical place. Sometimes people will tell you, um, as soon as I pulled into the city, I knew this is my home. This is my territory. Um, or maybe it's not that they even wandered. Maybe they have that sense even of the place where they were raised. They look around like Wendell Berry coming back home to Kentucky, to the hills of Kentucky, inhabiting the place he was born to inhabit. And so that that's a component, but I think deeper than that, it's a kind of psycho-spiritual place, a kind of psycho-spiritual geography where you are beginning to come home to yourself and inhabit who you are in the world. The image, the face you had before you were born, your true self, your true voice, you begin to inhabit such a thing. And in that sense, it doesn't matter where you live. And, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to myself because I'm one of those people who is always looking for 
you know, the grass is always greener somewhere else. You know, what if I lived in a commune in Italy? Or um, what if I moved back to Israel? Or what if I moved to the West Coast? Or what? And sometimes it's time to go. Sometimes the soul says it's time to go. But in learning the language of inhabiting who you are in the world, I think means you can be anywhere in the world. You are then being your truest self as best you can. And in that sense, inhabiting the place you were born to inhabit. And that thing, contact with that, contact with soul, in other words, is what I'm describing, begins to inform the number one question we get in modern culture, which is what do you do? What do you do? And of course, people want categories and labels and blah, blah, blah. But what you do begins to serve the place you were born to inhabit. In other words, your egoic persona begins to serve the soul. The image, images, aspirations, yearnings, and longings of the soul, it works the other way around. Instead of the ego and, quote, what you do in the world, shutting that thing down, it actually begins to serve. And you end up doing things in the world, putting forth things, trying things in the world, because um, because who you are wants to be born to its fullest. So that's what I got for you. That's a starting place. That's a runway. That's an on-ramp, I hope, to your own deepening soul story that wants to be born in the world. Good luck. <laughs>